this week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called What Makes a Great Sporting Leader and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas Festival in London in October 2014. I'd like to welcome everybody to What Makes a Great Sporting Leader. This discussion needs very little by way of introduction, although I, what I will say is that the panellists will give an opening presentation of up to five minutes and then we can have a wide-ranging discussion on all aspects both of the subjects of what makes a great sporting leader and also, more generally, maybe if people want to compare leadership qualities in sport and other areas or other parts of the world or whatever. Just to say, nothing really is off-limits in this discussion. It's, it's, it's not prescriptive. Just by way of introduction, I'll give a brief introduction of the, of, of the panellists uh, in the order in which they will speak, and then they'll speak for up to five minutes, then we'll have a, a discussion. Firstly is uh, Matthias Heidmann, is um, a freelance journalist, columnist for Schweizer Monat and Cicero, uh, and uh, uh, has, has written a book in the past on uh, doping in sport and has one coming out in the future on zeitgeist hunting. Uh, most importantly for this discussion, is he is a season ticket holder of Eintracht Frankfurt and a German. So, <laughs> Secondly, we have Thais Portillo, who is a journalist... Uh, campaigns and public affairs consultant, and as she said before, her main sporting credentials are that she is Brazilian and writes on br Brazilian and UK sport as well. Uh, thirdly, we have Luke Regan, who's a research officer of the Sports Think Tank and is a sports enthusiast in every respect, it says in his biography, and may want to reveal rather more uh, during the discussion. Fourthly, to my right, we have Hilary Salt, who's a founder of First Actuarial and a season ticket holder at Old Trafford, as well as being a, a fanatical cycling fan and interested in many other sports. And finally, on my far left, we have Philip Walters, who's chair of Rising Stars Educational Publisher and the GL Education Group, um, as a season ticket holder at uh, uh, Tottenham and has been going since 1961 and is a member of Middlesex uh, County Cricket Club. And just so I don't get missed out, I'm uh, Jeff Kidder, who's membership and events director of the Institute of Ideas. And I wonder, um, we have a very unusual office where everybody knows everything about every aspect of the arts, ballet, film, literature. Uh, and I'm the person who knows something about sport. So uh, I'd like to welcome you all to discussion. As I say, everybody will give short introductions and then we'll have an open discussion, audience questions, contributions. Uh, as is the standard format. So, Matthias, if you want to go first. When I got the invitation, um, there was a blurb saying that we were going to talk about cricket, um, and um, I'm happy not to have to do that. <laughs> so I want to address the question, what is the problem, or wh what is problematic about being a sports leader and sports hero today? Um, and obviously, I would like to talk a bit about the World Cup. Um, what I, found, what I found most interesting about the World Cup is that I think it might once be remembered as the beginning of the end of traditional sports heroism. Um, what struck me about the German team was is that they actually they didn't have any hero. Um, it was during the tournament the German players and the manager were heavily criticized. The tabloid press called the German game disgraceful. And even just a couple of minutes before Mario Götze scored in the World Cup final against Argentina, the German TV commentator called him the biggest German disappointment of the whole tournament. So 
Now, I'm not saying that Germany won because they didn't have any heroes. But my thesis is, and I do think, that Germany won because all other heroes failed. Look at Ronaldo, Balotelli, Iniesta, Messi, Julio Cesar. I could also mention that English guy, I think, called Rooney, but it would just be to please you, really. Um, <laughs> the case of Neymar, I think, was particularly interesting to me. It was not that Neymar himself failed. Actually, he did a marvelous job. But as soon as he got injured, not only his team, but basically the whole Brazilian nation seemed to have collapsed. Um, it seemed as if Brazilians saw him like a sort of religious savior um, who unfortunately left his team too early and left his team alone to be burned alive by the Germans. Maybe this is what happens these days to proper heroes. Proper heroes seem to be so alien to the ordinary life that people find it increasingly difficult to relate to them in a useful and in a, in a, in a, in a positive way. Heroes are either seen as somehow half-god or as complete nutters. So what is the problem with heroes today? And I would say the problem is that modern society does not like ambitious people. A hero self-consciously sticks out. He strives for excellence by challenging the ordinary, and he wants to give a lead. Can you imagine the moral pressure you experience when you say that in public? If you want to be a hero today, you do not only have to dominate your competitors, you also have to stand up against the zeitgeist of mediocrity and defend the very idea of human excellence, elitism, and ambition. So be prepared to be unpopular. And when I say unpopular, I don't mean that people might envy you. As it happens, envy encapsulates a very positive outlook. When someone envies you, then he has the ambition to be at least as good as you are, which is a positive thing. Today, unfortunately, envy is slowly being replaced by a profound disdain for ambition. The winner is not criticized for being the best, but for having been determined to win in the very first place. And this character trait is seen as one of the main reasons for personal, social, and political decay, not to mention the unsustainability of higher, faster, and further. Just as wealth is supposed to destroy a man's character, so is ambition. And this is why modern society does not trust successful people. Just take Usain Bolt. Everyone expects him to collect world records like flowers. But as soon as he does precisely that, people start questioning him. And just to get that point right, criticizing the ambition to win has got nothing to do with being friendly, fair, caring, or anti-elitist. On the contrary, it is anti-people and anti-human. There's nothing more backward than telling the second of a race that participation is everything. But today's climate not only doubts winners, it also praises the ability to fail and to suffer as key qualities of modern role models. Following this logic, you are not what you are living for, but what you have been going through and what you have suffered from. Whereas past successes get forgotten the next day, past failures and sufferings seem to determine your future. And just to give you a very prominent example for that, the German Formula One driver and former champion Michael Schumacher 
has always been very popular. But there had also been cynicism and suspicion in wide sections of the public and the media, only waiting to come out. And so it happened. One day after his horrible ski accident, German sports experts openly discussed on radio whether Schumacher finally became a victim of his own speed and risk addiction. And the worst thing about this is that now, as Schumacher's life is determined by physical and mental damage, he now finally became a hero. So what does that tell us? It means, never mind the titles you've won, what makes you a 21st century star is what you have been going through and what you have suffered from. Today's zeitgeist does not worship achievements. It prefers modesty, surviving skills, and the preparedness to fail. But once surviving and failing is celebrated as heroic, stagnation is turned into progress, and proper heroism becomes the antidote to humanness. Let's not give up on winners. Let's praise humanity by celebrating the excellence of sporting heroes and of leaders. Okay. Provocation to kick us off. Tears. So I, I kind of agree with Matthias a little bit. Um, not so much on the World Cup. Not so much on <laughs> Brazil's failures, but... Um, um, well, I think there is a huge focus today on um, individual talent and individual ability in all sorts. And I'm, I'm going to speak specifically about football. Um, so it's, you know, in, in, when I talk about individual talent, I, I not only think about the sort of great footballers um, that carry teams like Neymar, or, um, but, um, but also um, great managers like Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, and, and that's all great. And they can, you know, Alex Ferguson is an absolute legend. You know, you all know who, what he's done. I don't need to go there. But if you think about that, the minute he left Manchester United, Manchester United became a rather mediocre side um, and pretty much collapsed. Um, and it, there is no sort of um, recovering site. Um, then it sort of gives you food for thought. Um, so what, that what he did was simply the effort of one man, um, you know, so surrounded by, you know, the, what, one man's ideas within a team that took Manchester United to where, it, you know, he went. Um, and all it took was for that man to leave the helm, and it all just disappears. Um, so I'm going to talk about an example of something that I know I've, I, I've, I have some insight, which is Brazilian club football. Um, Brazilian club football um, had a glorious sort of era between 1950s and um, the, very much the end of the 80s, sort of mid-90s. But it started suffering a huge decline um, from sort of beginning of the, the mid-80s until it really did collapse by beginning of, of 2000. Um, and the reason for that is... Um, it's not that we don't have the talent. You all know Brazilian footballers are you know, amongst the best in the world. It's just that um, Brazil, uh, sort of in, in the kind of this sort of economic kind of landscape of sports, um, in especially football, became a seller. You know, all we started hemorrhaging talent in the 80s and 90s um, to, because European club football started developing and they started becoming the biggest buyers in Western football. And so... Um, 
what happened to Brazil was, um, whereas in, I, I still, I'm lucky enough to still have caught some of it, um, sort of late 80s, early 90s, to see Romario play for club football in Brazil for my team, and it was so exciting, and you had 30,000, we had sort of an average sort of 30, 40,000 people going to football games. Well, these days, you have um, Brazilian Championship, you have games where you have as few as 5,000 people going to a match. And we're talking here about Brazil, we're talking here about a country with 200 million people. Um, and, and the reason for that is the um, boys start playing football in Brazil these days, and it's been like that for the past 20 years, immediately thinking about um, sort of leaving the club. The minute they, they, set, they set foot in a club like Flamengo or Vasco or Corinthians, they're already thinking about Real Madrid and Barcelona. And, and so there is no room for development. There is no room for creating talent that we're going to keep in Brazil. I think this is one of our biggest problems. And, but when I talk about leadership, this is why I see a problem with individual leadership. We still have great managers in Brazil. We still have great footballers in Brazil. Um, some of them have actually stuck around. Um, but the biggest problem is, is the wider organization of the sport. You know, and if you think about it, there is something that I find absolutely baffling, which is um, football clubs in Brazil still work as sort of the social club, um, in the social club structure, they are not-for-profit entities. And they, they don't accept any external um, funding, um, so any external investment. So, so no international kind of, you know, uh, rich person can come to Brazil and invest in a football club. And, so in, and no rich people in Brazil can do the, the same either. So, you know, if you think about it, their biggest profit comes from selling footballers because, you know, membership's low, um, ticket revenue is very, very low, and so they, have, they rely on creating the next Neymars and, um, you know, Kakas and whatever it is so, so they can make profit. Well, so they can, make, they can raise money so they can pay wages, which are very low, which means that n only the sort of not-so-good footballers stick around because they're not good enough to go away and play in Europe. So when it comes to... So I know I'm looking at it from a slightly more sort of economic and um, organisation perspective, but I think it's very important to look at it because there is no improving Brazil on an individual um, sort of leading kind of basis, leadership basis, because you, you just, it's just not going to happen um, for as long as the, the structure of, of sort of team sports and structure of football especially remains the same. Um, so I, I, I just um, would like to sort of raise this with the panel. Is like would like to kind of you know um, hear their thoughts on um, what they think is the relationship between um, what's going on in Brazil and what's going on in, in sort of European club football as well. So um, that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, Luke. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Um, as Jeff said, I work for uh, the sports think tank, but um, prior to that, I was a, uh, a tennis coach for 10 years, and um, that's probably more pertinent to, the, to this than my current work. And um, <clears throat> uh, this, this topic interests me because in my experience and uh, from what is uh, on the news and the media, we don't seem to be producing enough sports leaders in this country and I think football is a decent example. Tennis is certainly a good example. Um, but we could be, because the headline from research that I understand is that leaders aren't born, they're made. 
Uh, there's no personality link between being a good sports leader. There's a behavior link, though. There's lots of behaviors that are common to sports leaders, but they can be learned and they can be taught. And my experience in my main sport of tennis is that the standards in leadership and the standards in coaching are, are, are really quite low. And somehow we're failing to produce these coaches, and that's evident in tennis and it's evident in, uh, in football. Um, so I'm going to be brief. Uh, I'm happy to be challenged on anything I've said. Uh, before I came in, I wrote down five things that I thought would be essential to being a sports leader, uh, a great sporting leader, and... Uh, some of the aforementioned Alex Ferguson and in the uh, introduction to the session, uh, Bob Paisley, Bill Shankly, Brian Clough are all good examples. And I'll offer them, and I'm happy to be challenged on them. I'm not dogmatic. If you, you know, feel free to try and change my mind. I'm quite open to it. Uh, but what I've written here is essentials for being a great sporting leader. Five things. You've got to know what you're talking about, uh, or more importantly, perhaps convey the perception that you know what you're talking about. Similarly, you've got to have authority or convey the perception that you've got authority. Uh, thirdly, you've got to be uh, a learner. Uh, I've heard other people, I've heard lots of people say a phrase called, the, you know, you have to be the eternal student. And uh, someone like Alex Ferguson is a really good example of that. Um, if you think you know it all, uh, you're, going to get, uh, you're going to get found out very quickly. But if you're somebody who's always looking to learn, who's always willing to change their mind, who's always going off to try and be better at what they do, you're going to be much more successful. Uh, fourthly, um, you've got to be adaptable. And by that, I mean you've got to be able to coach uh, and lead from situation to situation. One approach does not work for all situations. And I think from what I know about Alex Ferguson, what I've heard about people say to him was he was really good at that. We hear stereotypes about um, uh, the, the hairdryer. Uh, we, you know, all that ever makes the news is how he gives players a bollocking. But actually, he was, he was much more versatile than just being a shouty bully boy. And I think that's testament to his uh, longevity. Um, secondly, on the adaptability, uh, and I think this cuts across the last one I said about being the eternal student is that you've got to be able to um, adjust your style for the uh, era, perhaps, that you're in. And Ferguson was an astonishing example of this, having a career that spanned three decades. And I would imagine, I'm guessing, you know, when he started, sports science was, was not a phrase that even existed. Sports science was, you know, try and smoke, less than 20 fags a day and you'll probably you know you might be able to you know you might be able to, to get up and down the pitch a bit better you know there's no you know there was no such thing effectively yet right up until uh, when he retired you know the sports science from psychology from strength and conditioning from nutrition to everything is just completely dominating the sport yet he was open to that and he brought that brought that knowledge in utilized it to its maximum um, and the fifth thing I've written is uh, that you have to have good people around you and I think great leaders seldom, if ever, do it completely on their own. And uh, 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 Brian Clough's a good example. Um, uh, I brought with me an article today about uh, uh, a guy called um, Jimmy Gordon, who is the, uh, was his, uh, I guess, the, the unsung hero of the team, which was Brian Clough and Jimmy Gordon and uh, Peter Taylor. 
And if you know anything about uh, Brian Clough, most people say that, that Brian Clough would not have been half the manager he was, even if that, if it wasn't for Peter Taylor, because Peter Taylor was the one who picked all the players and, uh, and basically, the, basically the talent spotter. I think, as uh, Brian Clough said, he was the shop window and uh, Peter Taylor was the goods in the shop. So uh, good leaders will always pick good people. And, uh, and I think it's much more of a team effort than we, uh, than we, uh, than we sometimes think. But anyway, so I'll leave uh, those ideas with you, and um, and uh, please feel free to uh, be, please feel free to comment on them. Okay. Thanks. Thanks very much, Luke. Hillary. Thank you. I wanted to start off just by saying a few words about why are we uh, obsessive about thinking about uh, leadership in, in, in sports. And, and I think the reason that we are is that be, I kind of disagree with Matthias a little. I think sport is the one area where you are still allowed to behave in ways that you're not allowed to behave anywhere else. So where you are allowed to have uh, robust and clear management styles. Um, if, if you think about uh, football, for, for example... Um, it's very clear that in football, poor performance or, or disagreement with the manager can very quickly mean being dropped from the team, mean being put on the transfer list and mean being out. And you can contrast that, I think, really sharply with what you might get in your own workplace when you have a performance management issue, uh, where you will often uh, need to think about how can that person be better supported? Do they need some additional training? Uh, how do we uh, agree a period in which their performance might be uh, turned around? And you'll often go through that loop a, a, a number of times. And that can be really frustrating. And so I think we, 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 we almost have a kind of dismiss envy of managers in uh, uh, the uh, uh, premiership where they can effectively just uh, manage robustly and, and clearly. And I think that, you know, you can see that in a, a whole swathe of different areas of, of leadership in sports. So uh, sports managers are allowed to set high standards and to hold people to them. Uh, they are allowed to take risks uh, without setting up a, a risk register. Uh, they are allowed to lead uh, and they are allowed to have a clear objective. I mean, I, I appreciate that, that within football, for example, uh, some managers do need to manage different uh, competitions, the, the league. Uh, the Champions League, for those people still in that Mickey Mouse Cup, uh, the League Cup, uh, the, the uh, FA Cup, but there's a very clear objective of winning. Now, you can contrast that with something like British Gas, where you know, the aim is to sell gas, but actually not too much gas, because that might be uh, bad for the planet. Uh, Tesco, where the aim is to sell food, but probably not too much food, probably not make, make too much profit. So, you know, I, I think those things are things, things that, that we find really uh, appealing about looking at, at sports management because you can do things that you can't do in, in, in what you might call the real world. So with that as, as context, uh, to, to address the question that we've, we've, been, we've been asked, what makes a, a great sporting leader? I, I think one of the signs of a great sporting leader is that it's been uh, referred to already, the, the ability to build uh, team after team. I'm going to talk about two people, uh, Fergie, obviously, uh, but also David Brailsford in, uh, in uh, British Cycling. And I think the thing that, that allows them to, to, to do that, uh, rebuild, building and rebuilding teams, is, is three things, probably. Uh, they, their obsessive nature, uh, their attention to, to every detail, and having no sense of perspective whatsoever. Uh, you know, really being absolutely... Uh, uh, focused on, on, on winning and, uh, and their club. So if you think about some of those things, uh, Fergie, for example, people remember 2005 and his running with Keno, absolute control, absolute 
uh, you know, I will take charge of this situation. And down to really small details, you know, one of the things that we always uh, talk about in the pub after football when, when we had Fergie was, why did he decide to put the sprinklers on at half-time uh, 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 this week? Because, you know, he did control things uh, down to that level. Uh, David Brailsford concentrating on every bit of the bike, on the whole sports psychology thing as well. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, the Sky team introduced for uh, Tour de France is um, uh, cyclists take their own pillows with them uh, so they get a comfortable night's sleep and they don't pick up bugs. You know, so little things like that are, are things that, that you, know, you, you, you maybe wouldn't think of from the outside. My own particular favourite David Brailsford story is uh, when he was managing a, what, what you'd see as a personnel issue, really, within the uh, British cycling team around Victoria Pendleton. Uh, he kind of wasn't sure how to resolve that conflict. So he rang Alistair Campbell uh, and asked him if he could put him in touch with the uh, negotiators who had brought about the Good Friday Agreement, you know, because it's that important uh, to uh, a, a manager, a really good uh, manager. No sense of irony. But I do think that long-term uh, team building and rebuilding does require the manager to have a wider objective than just winning uh, I know that um, uh, in the England football, uh, sorry, in the England cricket team, for example, uh, you know, there, there really does seem to be a kind of dearth in a belief in anything other than kind of winning on the field. Uh, and I know some people here will be uh, familiar with C.L.R. James's quote, you know, what do they know of cricket? Who only cricket know? And it kind of feels a bit like, you know, what do they know about winning? Who only know about winning on the field? That, that there has to be something uh, beyond that. And again, you might think in, in terms of David Brailsford about the idea of not just winning, but winning clean, uh, you know, which was a whole different uh, aspect to, to uh, uh, the challenges that, that he set himself. For Fergie, it wasn't just winning. It was winning the United way. Uh, and it was winning in a way that beat all those people who hated United. You know, a really, you know, a significant extra uh, element to the uh, idea of winning. And the, th the final person I just wanted to throw in was, was, was Graham Taylor, um, who I think did establish a, a broader belief amongst fans and, and the wider public, actually, uh, that Watford winning meant something uh, outside football, meant something bigger. And I want to kind of bring that back to where I started. My, my absolutely favourite Graham Taylor quote is, you don't get cramp at this club. Um, and, and, and when somebody rings in sick uh, and I say to them, you don't get a cold at this company. Uh, people do tell me that I am a bully. Uh, you know, and I think sometimes good leaders need to be that. Thank you. Um, well, I think my role today, given that my personal contribution to sports leadership is but a, a tiny grain of sand on an Olympic-sized beach, uh, in that it involved captaining my school cricket team's third 11 three years running, uh, a, a record that I think stands to this day, um, and our win ratio wasn't very high, I have to confess, um, it's to raise a couple of ideas about whether there's really these connections between leadership in sport and leadership in business. Um, normally, I think I'd echo the words uh, uh, to be found in the Harvard Business Review, and I'd run a four-minute mile away from notions that draw comparisons between business and sport. Um, after all, business and sport is the second most common cliche in management, right on the heels of anything to do with comparing business to a military <laughs> battlefield. However, I found myself challenging this view as a result of attending the annual private equity conference, yes, such a thing does exist, um, earlier this year. 
The keynote speaker was Sebastian Coe, and his explanation of why it entered um, what many would think was a Satan's den was very interesting. He, in his speech, he compared uh, top sports performers and leaders with top investors and entrepreneurs, particularly in the way that they thought about risk. His proposition was that all these people assessed and analysed risks and then took them if their analysis showed this would increase the chances of winning. This was made weirdly clear to him just after London had won the rights to stage the 2012 Games. It's forgotten now, but almost every part of British society was gloomy about how they would turn out. There was a terrible difficulty for LOCOG in its search for sponsorship at that early stage. It took a long time for sponsorship to be forthcoming from any source, except for one. And the reason why Sebco had gone to the private equity event was that the one group that had come forward right at the beginning, asking how they could help, asking how they could invest, was private equity. Private equity in general had assessed the considerable risks involved in this mighty project, but felt that with the right level of investment, those risks were well worth taking. They asked immediately how they could help and how they could invest. Co then made the point that it's exactly that kind of risk-reward ratio elite sports performers and leaders look at and take all the time. The essential connection, I'd argue, is that both groups share certain things. They're extremely competitive. They're driven by calibrated results where there's no hiding place. The, the other, there are other co characteristics, like the, you know, we talk about talent, but if we, we put the talent to one side, I think the, the other things are that there's a lot of particular kind of intelligence-focused um, and focus and controlled ruthlessness and I think that's something that you know we haven't talked about but is extremely important um, I should emphasize here that Sebastian Coe he wasn't talking about corporate capitalism the kind of capitalism that I think Hillary was talking about he was talking specifically about private equity and private entrepreneurs um, I, I guess we're increasingly coming to understand that most Corporates, as we know them, like British Gas or whatever, are kind of sclerotically risk-averse. The second uh, idea that I thought I'd like to offer up for consideration came to me when I was thinking about my football teams, that's Tottenham again, most unjustly forgotten manager, a guy called Keith Birkinshaw. I doubt that many of you here will remember Keith Birkinshaw. However, he was manager of Tottenham in what I would say was its last golden period, which was in the early 80s. Won a number of trophies, including its last European Cup in 1984. And I think it's also true that Keith Birkinshaw created a, a wonderfully entertaining and fun-to-watch team. How, however, in 1983, something quite interesting happened, which was that Tottenham became a publicly quoted company, became a PLC. And a year later, just after uh, it had won the what was the predecessor of the Europa Cup, um, Keith Birkinshaw was moved on, as they say. He's then alleged to have said, as while looking back at White Hart Lane, walking down the Tottenham High Street, he's alleged to have said, 
there used to be a football club there. Now, although I think Keith is, is largely forgotten, that comment is not. It's come to represent a deep feeling that somehow the people's game has become corrupted by business. Well, if Seb Coe's proposition is right, can this feeling be actually soundly based? I'd suggest the conflict comes from a confusion between outcomes and skills. In the first case, they have been different. In the second case, they're largely overlapping. If the skills are very similar, but they're reaching towards different ends, then no wonder it often feels like there are irreconcilable differences in many of the clubs that we support. At the extreme end of the investment cycle, though, at clubs like Manchester City and Chelsea, there's so much money flooding through these enterprises that the two outcomes actually end up becoming one and the same. Um, the closest I've ever been to someone in a position of serious leadership in sport was when an old colleague of mine went on to become quite senior at one of these extreme-end football clubs. He'd call me every so often, and we'd have a chat about this and that, and I'd ask him what it was like, to which he would always reply, it's capitalism, but not as we know it. It's in some ways a dystopian view of the future, and some would argue the ultimate corruption of what sport was meant to be. But the future may be dominated by teams and individuals where the overlapping skills of business and sport, supported by almost unlimited quantities of capital, create almost unbeatable outcomes. Thank you. Okay, so we've had a number of very interesting introductions, a lot of wide-ranging points. What I'm going to do is, because the speakers have uh, collectively you know, spoken for half an hour, so I'll ask if there's any immediate questions or points from the floor, and then I'll get people to come back on what, that, what each other has said or what people from the floor have said and take from there. Yes? one extra feature we've missed out, which was uh, Napoleon's instruction to his generals to be lucky. And uh, I think uh, Sir Alex has a lot to thank Mark Robbins for. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask all you guys if you think the like, concept of sport leadership in terms of like, management uh, is changing from uh, like that sort of 80s. Like, you've quoted a lot of people from the past, but uh, I wanted to uh, hear your thoughts on like the idea of like general managers. Uh, now football managers uh, less and less have absolute control of teams. General managers run the club like a business and also uh, uh, work on personnel. Chelsea have one, Tottenham have one, uh, which is borrowed from like the American model of sport. I wanted to hear if you think that there is a fundamental change in the way sports are run. Okay, it's in front of you. And then... Hi, good afternoon. Um, I just want to ask the panel if they saw that um, good leaders have um, a moral dimension to their leadership, uh, as well as all the attributes that you've mentioned. Uh, for instance, Ferguson, I, I never heard about him fanning in a hotel room with some woman who wasn't his wife or in some sort of uh, betting scandal or anything like that. So he had a very horse rate, but he, he wasn't found to have sort of gambled all his money away. I know the thing about the two shareholders who had, he had problems with that. I just wondered if you'd like to consider that. Okay, and in front of you? Yeah, I just wanted to know if you um, equate um, winning with good leadership. Um, I have in mind Arsene Wenger here, who's, I think, Jose, Jose Mourinho called a, a winner and failure or something along those lines. 
and touching on the moral aspect, the fact that he is a manager who balances the books consistently, oversaw a stadium, didn't go into debt, whereas Alex Ferguson, you know, you could argue, you know, left the club in debt and bought success. And I know it was kind of weird when Arsene Wenger said about consistency and not winning trophies always, always been um, important. And I'm a Liverpool fan, and I think Gerard is a, a great leader, but I don't think he'll win the league title at any point. OK. Right, I'll take this, this lady here, then a guy there, and then we'll come back to the panel and come back on any of these points or, or what other people have said or whatever. Yeah. I know the focus has been pretty heavily on football, um, but I just wanted to bring up something like cricket um, because... I think it's interesting how there's so much difference in focus when a team wins or loses, who the, the blame, I'll say. But I, I mean, I don't mean the blame in particular. Um, in cricket, for example, Freddie Flintoff, um, he was under so much scrutiny when he was the captain. And yet in football, if a team loses, it seems like the manager is, is 100% under the scrutiny. In rugby, it's different. In, I don't know, hockey. Who watches hockey anyway? But all the same. Um, but I mean, do you think it's because of the commercial coverage or because of the sport itself? Uh, thank you. I was really pleased to hear Hillary mention Graham Taylor, who is the greatest leader of, of all time. Um, but I just wonder if, um, if part of the, the equation is who they are winning for. Um, because I, I'm a season ticket holder at Watford. When Graham Taylor did uh, shout, you don't get cramp at this club, we all thought he was saying that on our behalf, that he was winning for us. And I just wonder if that's why the um, examples are the Brian Clubs. The Fergusons, who will never be repeated again, because today's managers are not winning on behalf of the fans as such. They're winning on behalf of perhaps themselves or the financiers. And I, I just wonder if that's... In a way, that justifies some of the, um, some of the ruthlessness um, that we would find difficult justifying in other uh, workplaces and whether we, can ever, whether we will ever really see leaders in football of the sort we've talked about, simply because... They're not doing it for us anymore. Okay. Uh, we go just along the line, so mid test. Sorry, I have to leave the cricket question to you. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to address the, the moral question that was asked, and I do that by um, uh, saying to Hillary that uh, actually we agree on that. Uh, sport is still one of the areas where, um, where ambition is. Uh, worshipped and allowed and needed. Um, this is true. Uh, and it's probably it's also the, the only area where actually, at least in Germany, a manager can say when uh, the team has lost, we were not greedy enough and everybody would not and would think this is a good, a good assessment. So be more greedy next time. This is what, what I love about sports, that this is still... Um, a very strong sentiment. Having said that, um, if you look at uh, the role that the sport professionals play these days, they, they're coming more into the role of being a role model. And this does not, is not limited to being excellent in your field of um, expertise. But you, you're not allowed to smoke, you're not allowed to, to drink, you shouldn't uh, say funny things, you're not allowed to, to have a message on your shirt. Uh, you get a yellow card for that. So uh, the only thing, it, and people expect uh, from you to give a decent interview two minutes after the game is over. You know, all, all that funny things come onto it as well. 
And as a consequence, this is actually relativizing um, the importance of performance. And this is what happened to sports people these days. Um, so, and this is also um, the reason why um, uh, athletes are being invited to business conferences these days. You know? I think these things go together. Just, just step back a bit and, and have a decent thought about what on earth should Sebastian Coe be able to tell business leaders? I mean, you know, why do they need input from sports people? It's because in sport, they're still greedy. Being greedy is still a good thing. So um, this is really uh, this is a, a bit of a consequence of the moralization of uh, of what it means to be a role model these days. And sport is actually suffering from that. I'd like to um, address the question about balancing the books and consistency. Um, well, I happen to be a West Ham fan, um, which, well, thank you. No, nobody actually groaned. <laughs> well, we are fourth in a table, so yeah, exactly. Um, but but it's, it's an interesting thing because um, not all teams are going to be men cities and men Uniteds. And, you know, I think, I think clubs go through phases and West Ham has been through very tough phases. Um, but I think um, we've, been, we've been going up with Sam Allardyce. And one of, the biggest, um, one of his biggest talents is, is actually the ability to be consistent. I know, you know, we sort of... Actually, last season we were a bit up and down. But I think he's found his footing now. And it's important because it's, it's the important thing is to think about what comes next. Because you can spend maybe, I don't know three, five years being consistent. And you, you, you can go either way next, but it, uh, ideally you're going to go up. And, and having that base of, of you know, having the, the consistency of going through all those years, the likelihood is that you will go up. Um, so, so I don't think, um, let's I mean, just put it like this, being a boring team is a, is a, is a bad thing. Um, unless you stay a boring team forever, then that's terrible. So, um, uh, so I, I, I think... Um, well, I think that's it. And just on the moral dimension, that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I think it is important um, in, in football to have uh, some, some sort of role model. I mean, you have kids up and down this country who look at footballers and say, I want to be like that guy when I grow up. You know, I love playing football. I want to be as good as he is. Um, but there is a whole culture, you know, and there's a whole lads culture, for instance, when you come into, when you go into football, I won't even bring up the Chad Evans stuff, but, you know, it's just, there is a whole lads culture and a whole thing. And in terms of leading the field, in terms of being a manager, yeah, I do think it's important that you have somehow, you know, if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be at the top, I don't want to be moralizing or anything, but it's, it kind of gives you, you know, some sort of gravitas to be, to be there. But then you can, be, you can also be like Harry Redknapp, so, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's all I've got to say. Um, just, just on this, has, has management, has the whole, whole concept of being a manager changed? And one of the things that, that I was 
uh, mulling over, thinking about what I was going to say today, was, to, was whether to, to dwell on this issue of the difference between managers and coaches and performance directors as a proliferation uh, of terms. Because I think whoever said it was right that actually, you know, that, that there is more to management than, than there once was. And, and managers will often effectively subcontract uh, down uh, uh, s some of that work. But I think the important point is that the Fergies of this world will make sure that, that they still control everything. You know, they might subcontract the doing of it, but they do, uh, there's no dispersal of power. And again, that's actually quite interesting compared to business. Because in business, actually, there's a real discussion around, it's really bad to have one locus of power. It's really bad to have one person who's on the board and, and on the executive. You know, you need more non-executive directors in politics. You need to devolve power down to the regions. Actually, it's the absolute opposite of that is the belief uh, I believe, of, of good uh, managers in sports. Um, don't believe Fergie's all great. Fergie control the press massively, you know. So there's lots of things that, that could have got in the papers uh, that, that didn't. Um, and we're not going to mention it. No, we're not going to mention today, absolutely. Uh, and and uh, uh, just on the, the moral question, I think the morality of football is winning. Um, and I disagree absolutely with the idea that footballers have to be role models. Footballers have to be role models for how to play football. You know, and uh, people, uh, kids need to get their uh, their moral compass from their from their parents and, and and the other people in their communities, not from footballers. You know, they should learn how to play good football from footballers uh, and, and nothing else. The question of is there. Have we kind of gone over a watershed where no, we will no longer be in a place where managers effectively manage for, for the fans? See, I'm not sure Fergie ever managed for the fans. Fergie managed for Fergie. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do think there's sometimes a bit of, of, of romance, kind of romantic ideas uh, brought into the idea of, you know, uh, things. Are, there was a golden age of football when managers were, were, were very different. So I kind of perhaps leave that one for a bit more exploration uh, from the floor. I'll try and address as many things as I can. Um, I do believe in luck. As a, I can't back that up massively, as is the nature of the, the, the question. I do believe you need a break. I don't believe it's enough just to be good. And uh, I think if you look back at, some, at, at everyone's career, you can, you'll find a successful career, you'll find a point where you know, the balance was tipped and things could have gone either way, and if they had gone the other way, then uh, you might never have heard of that person. Uh, on the, uh, the, the changing nature of being a manager, uh, I, agree, I agree with Hillary uh, completely, and I kind of go back to the point I mentioned in my introduction. I think regardless of the structure on what you call this uh, you know, general manager, coach, head coach, director of football, I think... If there is the perception on the or, or, and or the reality of absolute power in one of those, from one of those positions, you're, you, you, uh, you're all right, I think. I don't think if, if a structure like that undermines one person's authority, then I think that's where things start to break down. And I think that's a problem that cricket has. Uh, and I think it's a problem that is, uh, you know, has, has arisen at, at, at various football clubs and I'm sure lots of sporting institutions all over the place. I really uh, agree with this, this, this absolute power thing. And I think if you, 
Uh, we've mentioned business as a, as a comparison uh, industry to sport. I think another good one is the military. And I think if you do something, you do things in a sporting organization or a business organization, that you, you could go a lot worse than just doing something that reflects you know, our, you know, the armies and, and navies, air forces, that sort of thing. I think that's a power structure that has evolved to be very efficient, very effective, and it's done so in order to protect, you know, some of the most sacred things that we've, you know, that, that, that we've that we've had in history. And I think it's a, it's worth looking at that just to say that, you know, because it, it's largely unchanged for God knows how many hundreds or even thousands of years. And I think that, that you know, it's, it's fairly good to, to to do things like that. On the moral dimension, I also agree with what's been said. I think the morality has kind of won out for a bit, and it's and it's it's very it's very boring. It's very boring that you, you that, that most of our famed leaders aren't uh, adulterers or drinkers or, or or philanderers and all that sort of thing. But I don't think you I don't think you have to to not be. I think uh, I think it's perfectly feasible that you can uh, get results, uh, get someone to win a team or a person, and then you know go off and and. And do whatever you know. Do whatever uh, 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 you want to in your fair, in your spare time. But it just so happens that the, the press and, and us as a culture will look down on that, and we'll 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 uh, we'll, uh, we'll vilify you for it. I mean, when I was growing up, I always liked Pele better than uh, Maradona. And uh, 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 as I get older, and it might just be an age thing, I actually find I find Pele so boring and sanitized and corporate. And he's so dull and so perfect, and it's just oh, I prefer Maradona. I'd sooner, I'd sooner, you know, I, I wish that there was found myself wishing for more characters that would that would uh, that, 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 that would be more that would be more like him. So I don't think uh, I don't think you have to be moral to be to be uh, to to be a winner. Um, oh yeah, well, yeah, sorry, I'm good, good. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I think that's about it. I'll, I'll give him. Yeah, maybe just two things to add. Uh, one about a, a little anecdote about the moral dimension. I mean, it's like um, this idea that, you know, fans are all desperate for their, the morality of the uh, teams or the individuals that they're supporting. I, I remember um, being at White Hart Lane on the Saturday after Harry got off at the Old Bailey or wherever he was, uh, cleared of his tax evasion and uh, also linked with um, the England job. And uh, I think there were many people who still felt that although Harry ha- had been found not guilty, he he might have been as guilty as a puppy sitting in a pile of poo, but the jury just liked him. And he, he kind of, you know, I can't say, it's on the public record, and I mustn't say that kind of thing. Um, but what happened was he was being linked with the England job we were 4-0 up after 20 minutes against Newcastle United, which is very unusual, I can tell you. And um, we all started singing, we'll pay your tax, we'll pay your tax. Please stay, Harry Redknapp, we'll pay your tax. Now, I suggest that's a much more realistic assessment of uh, the interaction between morality and fandom than a lot of other bullshit you hear. Um, on the subject of cricket, I, I think... You, you absolutely nailed something that is, I, I don't know what, I, I hesitate to say unique because I, I don't absolutely know, but certainly in terms of popular sports, there's nothing quite like 
the captain's role in cricket, in that you are a real influencer on the field of play. I mean, if you think about, okay, you mentioned Stevie Gerrard, and, and you know, he, he, I, I, I grant you, in, in a certain kind of way, he is seen as a leader. I think probably if you thought of most football clubs at the moment, the only captain outside your own team's captain you could think of would be Vincent Company. I would suggest, because, you know, again, I think everybody would kind of see there's a guy who, who's got that. But he doesn't have to decide tactics on the field of play. Whereas Alistair Cook, God help him, and he fa- he's found it a struggle, has had to do that. And he's, he's found that extremely difficult. And God knows what happened to the Indian team in the space of six days to go from looking like world beaters to being utterly abject. But something happened, and I don't think it was to do with Alistair Cook suddenly finding a rich vein of... Mike really like inspiration for his team. Jeff, can I just add something? I just wanted to add something on the morality point, which is uh, actually quickly two things. One of them is I don't think footballers have to be role models. I think they happen to be role models to a lot of kids. I think, you know, maybe something that we need to kind of, you know, take away one thing from another. But as it is now, I think that's that's how a lot of kids see it and that's how the press portrays it in in a way. So I think it's a problem that exists. It's there. And on the other hand is... I, I agree. I don't care if footballers sleep with other people and not their wives, whatever it is. I mean, it's none of my business. Uh, and you can do whatever they want. I do find it really sad, though, because I, you know, while I was, when I was in Brazil, I saw lots of footballers' lives really, really ruined by drugs and drinks um, and drinking. And, and I can give Adriano as an example. That guy had a brilliant future ahead of him. And he just spiraled into uh, down, you know, into drug abuse and all that. But I don't think that should be seen under a, under a prism of morality. I think it should be seen under a prism of we need to help that person. And the problem is they do get a lot more judgment than help. So, um, which is, you know, because of this whole the the the, the way that the press is and the, what footballers should be and the pressures on them. Um, but I think there should be a shift in culture, which is, you know, um, we, it's not about the judgment. But I, I don't think they should be just free to run and, you know, do drugs as much as they want because they are sports people after all and you need to think about your performance. If you're serious about winning, you know, so I, I could get into a whole lot of things, but I just, you know, it's not about being, it's not about morality, it's about performance, it's about health, it's about, um, you know, not judging people for having problems, could, could go down to mental health problems as well. So it's, it's a whole other thing that people tend to put under the prism of morality, but I think there are lots of other kind of factors around it. Just to ask a couple of questions myself, just on the morality thing, not whether it's right or wrong, but I always think about how Tiger Woods has never recovered from, from what happened, and he, yeah. he's never won another major. Yeah. And anyway, I mean, is that the weight of the pressure of what's happened to him, or is it, you know, but that's very striking, anyway, it's been a lot of years now. The other thing, because Tate in the introduction talked about the structural and economic issues in Brazilian football, but and that's obviously a factor in many different areas. But, but you look at Mike Brearley or Alex Ferguson or Mourinho, who people have mentioned, yeah. these people, are, are they, could anybody be those people or are they either geniuses or particular people? You know, Clough might have been a shop window, but he was the man. You know, he, it wasn't like he was just a front or something. So is there something particular about certain people that gives them that gravitas and, and the things that other people have mentioned, or how, 
what's that all about anyway? Because you know when somebody has that, and when somebody has it, you just know, and there are certain people. But obviously, anyway, there we go. Uh, yes. Carol, do you want to go first? Yeah, yeah. My question is um, going to be back on cricket, unfortunately. Um, I was just wondering, in, England, in English cricket, are we perhaps too greedy? I think I remember back when um, Jacques Cullis became captain of South Africa at 21. He remained captain until, the test captain until he retired. And since then, we've had Nasser Hussein, Michael Vaughan, Andrew Strauss, Kevin Peterson, and Alistair Cook. It seems every time we have a problem in English cricket, it's like, okay, let's throw out the captain. We've had a bad series and get a new one. I mean, I can think of many times where Cullis had problems and the team had problems. Yeah. Smith, sorry, apologies, Grant Smith, yeah, and they just stay always stuck with him. Um, and we don't seem to stand by, by, by captains in England at all. We seem to have them every 10 seconds. And the biggest thing for me is when Alistair Cook, we thought about getting rid of him, who's, gonna go, who's, who's next? Ian Bell? Don't we feel like Ian Bell's next? Uh, it was talking about Owen Morgan, who hasn't played a test for England since, since India. It was, it was insane. Um, I'm slightly confused because... I see a difference between being a star, like Tiger Woods is, to me is a star, but he's not a particularly great leader. Mm. Um, and some of the, I'm not familiar, very familiar with football, but I think a lot of people have been mentioned that are stars, but I see that as different from a leader. Um, and stars, I think, can just do what they want as long as they produce the goods and that's what they're paid to do. Um, Leaders, I think, are, are people who create the circumstances to enable the win. And for me, a good leader is basically someone who does that, who creates the circumstances to enable people to win in sport. I think the context of business and other things are very different. Um, I'm one of those bally-loving folks who um, Jeff mentioned at the beginning, so I do apologise for this. I'm not sure if I just I agree totally with the last comment. So I just want to take an example for Bally because I'm, what I'm interested in is in the relationship between the individuals who may just be brilliant, brilliant at what they do sports-wise and dance-wise, and the team. You, in a Bally company, you need a strong core to Bally. You're absolutely screwed if you don't have that. But you need the prima donnas. And the influence of the relationship between Nureyev and Fontaine is still felt in that company all the way through that company. So it's a tradition of brilliance, individual brilliance, that is seeped into the tradition of a club or ballet company. And I'm interested in the, the panel's thoughts about that relationship between individuals who bring something transcendent almost to a club, to a team, to a ballet company. I think they're, following what you say, I think it's very important, that sense of tradition, values that go on over the years. I just want to put Philip a little bit right. Spurs didn't win the European Cup in 1984. You said that later, not the first time. Anyway, it's right. Um, and to talk about morality, if you could think a little bit about Robin's diving, because is there any worse? And while we're about West Ham, I know we love West Ham, but how comes taxpayers are spending... Billions to build their stadium. It seems a bit immoral to me. Um, Philip, you did say controlled ruthlessness, and I think that's a really good point in terms of leadership. But I might extend it to also ability to deal with lots of different personalities. So a subjugation of self for some and an over for others. And I think you were alluding to charisma, uh, Jeff, and I think this whole charisma illusion myth that and it's very you know I in the Spurs program a couple of weeks ago I was actually in there four pages it's called Living with a Legend because my dad used to play for the Arsenal 
And um, to his dying day, I said, what is it about management? And he never got, for me at least, beyond what they sort of used to say, you know, have a good game today, enjoy yourself. And you thought, is that all? I want more. And there must be something more, but perhaps it's just all a sort of fantasy level almost, this myth that's behind those words. Yes, I also want to accentuate, I think, the, the difference between a talent and a leader. You can be an excellent talent in certain sports, but that does not make you a leader. Um, Suarez may be a world-class player, but for me, is anything but a leader. To the same extent that if you were to play for Spurs, for instance, which is my team, I would be opposed to that. I mean, I would actually reduce my support of Spurs. But... Got, but they nearly got Suarez. Ah, God, no. It was this close. I, I you would might, be, might be changing your tune if Spurs win the championship. I would be a very poor person. At the moment. Yeah, I, I don't like such players. I, for me, sportsmanship has to mean something. And, and, you know, when I'm looking at managers that actually say, I would like to have him on my team, they resemble for me a politician. You know, politicians don't have any scrupulousness. They, they don't have any morality. And I would expect to have some morality in, in sport. Which brings me to, to the question... Is there a difference between leader in sport and leader in life? Um, do, do they have the same qualities? Um, or is there something that is very specific about sport that makes one a leader? And related to the, to the issue of politics, there is a difference between being a politician and being um, um, a statesman. Is a leader more than just a manager of a team? Or is something that you expect you know, to, to be a role model? for sport. Hi. Um, some of the characteristics you started to develop uh, just put me in mind of uh, John Ronson's uh, work on CEOs and the uh, psychopath test. I just wondered if you might comment on that. Hi, um, yeah, I'm interested in this idea of moral leadership, right? And I, I thought, so there's a practical question, right? Say you're the leadership of Sheffield United. Uh, Chad Evans just been released from prison. Um, does it show more leadership to give this guy a second chance or to expose thousands of young fans to you know, having to cheer on a convicted rapist? I was just going to bring that um, example in uh, with that Welsh guy. I heard, I heard that story yesterday, and I just think it's... Um, I'm very clear on that. If, uh, if the, the, the team and if the manager want him to, to come back, uh, he should come back and he should play, yes, because this is what... Um, being convicted for a crime means, you know, you go to prison uh, and you, you're released and this is, uh, this is you back in society and uh, getting the second chance. Yes, I would be absolutely in favor. You know, if, if the team and the, and the manager want him to play, he should definitely play. Um, I think just, just back on that, on that moral question, you know, and, uh, it really, I mean... Um, all that moralization of sports in terms of you know smoking ban on the on uh, at the pitch you know for managers you know all, all that crap i would say this is really um keeping um strange people and freaks uh, keeping them off uh, keeping them off sports could you could you could you imagine cesar luis menotti becoming a, a manager of argentina when there was a smoking ban no, uh, he would just thought, oh no, my, why should I go there? You know, I do go, go and get go and do some something else. You know, that if this is such a 
um, uh, such a narrow thing uh, uh, I have to follow there. So, it, I th and you know, this is one thing that we witness today. We, I can at least for German football, I think there's a desperate lack of freaks, yeah? <laughs> a desperate lack of people you know, sticking out, uh, uh, being you know saying weird things, you know, but being brilliant on the pitch, you know. Uh, uh, and, and sometimes these things actually, you cannot have the one without the other, you know. Um, and, and this is really what is missing today, you know. Can you imagine, you know, there's, uh, Germany is one of the countries that actually uh, got, won the World Cup in 74. Um, we had Maoists in the team winning the World Cup in 74. Could you imagine this, you know? Uh, uh, you know, so, so you really see how how freedom actually is, is being uh, uh, destroyed, you know, um, by uh, uh, trying to make these people role models instead of being um, excellent freaks. And this is what I meant in my introduction, that there's an hostility against people sticking out and um, being special. And this is actually what, what harms society and sports. Um. I just think Brazil, for instance, has the V. Louise. It's a bit of a freak <laughs> with the hair and all. Oh, it's, it's a funny, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a newborn, he's uh, a born again Christian, and uh, he believes in uh, not having sex until after marriage. He's 20. After marriage. Uh, yeah, 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 after getting married. But anyway, um, so on the cricket point, I think the attitude um, in the English cricket team has more to do with the. With the with the British culture of off with their heads, you know, whenever, you know, claiming a scalp whenever things go wrong than anything else. I, 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 that's that's all the, the whole point. I'm sorry if I'm causing a diplomatic incident here. But um, uh, if someone uh, made a point about individual brilliance and um, it, within a team and, you know, the prima donnas, and we're using the ballet example, um, I... I think individual brilliance is all very well, um, but individual brilliance without leadership means... Um, uh, Brazil collapsing with, when Neymar can't play, you know that's that's that, I think that's the best example I can give, um, and uh, because there was no leadership in the Brazilian team, um, Felipe just did enough for anything this time around. Um, the team was just, you know, it was a reflection of the state of Brazilian club football, Brazilian football as a whole, and the fact that all our kids go off, we come off to Europe to play, and and then you know whatever manager sort of. Uh, gets to manage the team has to bring kids from everywhere and make a team out of it. So it's it's really tough. Um, uh, on the point about the West Ham about West Ham moving to the Olympic Stadium, I'm actually against the move. I love Upton Park. I don't think we should be going anywhere. I believe each one of you guys is paying 20p for that move. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not defending it. I'm just just putting the facts out there. <laughs> Well, there you go. Um, I am against. I am against the move. Um, and um, on the on the Chad Evans uh, question, um, I I think if the team wants him back, he should be allowed to play. I think it's. I mean, he did go to prison. He did serve his sentence. Uh, if it wasn't enough, it's a matter for the courts and the judge. Uh, he, he, I find it disgraceful that he shows no remorse, even though he's been convicted of a crime and had to go to prison. But he is entitled to claim um, innocence. It's a, it's a right of his. He can say whatever he wants. Um, 
And I think it's up to the team whether they want to um, manage him uh, in, you know, in this kind of way, uh, being the way he is, no remorse, no whatever. But I, don't, I, I think it's up to the team to decide. Um, yeah, so that's it. Uh, just on, on the questions around, uh, around the things that you need to be a, a good leader, one, one of the things that I found really interesting about, um, believe it or not, the, the second round of the Scottish FA Cup uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, was that one of the teams in it was Stirling University, and, and they were managed by a woman. I think that's the first senior man's team game where a woman was the manager of the uh, football team. They lost, as it happens. Uh, but but if, if you ask the question, name a, a female good sports leader, that's actually quite a tough question to, uh, to try and answer. Uh, I'll maybe leave the thought out with you, but uh, it, it does, I think, raise the question of, you know, what, why is that? Why do they not just trip off the tongue, lots of, of good female uh, uh, leaders? And, and I do think it is to do with the fact that a lot of the things, the masculine qualities, the, fact, the things we find quite difficult in, in this day and age, you know, leadership, having a belief, having a, a very aggressive approach to life, those things are actually seen as a bit problematic and, and, and maybe you know, that there's, there's some link there between why it's not actually that easy to name a, a female sports leader. Yeah, lot, lots, lots of really interesting points, lots of really good questions from the floor there. I wish I could answer any of them uh, satisfactorily. Um, uh, just on um, uh, Jeff's question about if anyone could, could, could be a coach... Uh, I do believe the answer to that is, is yes, although it's supremely difficult because, as I say, I, I believe that the, the, the skills there are, are learnable. And in theory, anybody could learn them given the right um, uh, motivation. But then again, I, I also agree that there seems to be this kind of X factor, Mourinho factor, where someone comes along with a kind of an indefinable and intangible personality, charisma, just ability to make people do what they want them to do. People just look at somebody or listen to them and they just want to follow them and do things for them. And I, I, you know, I, I can't explain that, though uh, I would like to see more effort to try and pin down what it is. And this cuts across some of the points that we've had about ballet and about whether a, a leader in a, a sports are kind of a unique type of leadership or would a good sports leader be... Uh, just as effective in another arena. And unfortunately, we just don't get enough opportunities to find out if this is the case. Uh, I can barely think of people cutting across even other sports to do leadership. I mean, there was Clive Woodward, I think, working at Southampton uh, for a while in some capacity. I, I, I don't really know, but I, I, I want to see more of that. I want to see people try that uh, much more. I would love, if I was in charge of a sport, and if, if it was me, it would be tennis, I would be, um, t and you know, the LTA's loaded. I'd be all over Dave Brailsford to come and work for the LTA. I would be absolutely at his door, Brian Clough style, stuffing money through the, the, the letterbox and just, you know, handcuffing myself until, until he agreed. I would really do that. But we don't seem to be doing that. And this cuts across, I think, what we just said about football is, uh, uh, and, and female leaders. We don't know enough because I think too many sports are just entrenched in a culture of what a manager looks like, what a captain looks like, what a, 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 a coach looks like. We're so entrenched in these cultures. And leadership is so much more expansive than 
just your uh, examples that we've spoken about today. It happens in all, just endless, in, in infinity amount of different contexts where different behaviours are effective. But to take the example of football, we're entrenched in this thing still that a manager should be a shouty bully boy. I mean, maybe we're coming out of it now, actually, because, you know, we've got Rob Martinez's and, 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 uh, and Pochettino's who are a bit, you know, a bit more... Uh, democratic, but we're still stuck in that. Clubs are still stuck in that this this culture of what a manager should look like, and they're the people who always get the jobs. And it's not a woman, you know. That is certainly not a woman, and it's uh, in their minds. And so that's why you know that's why we don't that's why we don't see them. But there are good women coaches out there, and there's lots of them. I agree with leaders creating the circumstances. Um, uh, I just want to say again on the, the one thing the ballet point made me think of is that one of the things that I read in a, an interview with Dave Brailsford. Um, uh, in the newspaper, was that he had a uh, he had an idea or one of his uh, dreams? I don't know what, what you call it if it's a reality or if it actually said what he'd like to see. He'd like to see an institute for leadership, where you go to the uh, the army, the, the to NASA, to to uh, uh, you know Fortune 500 companies, to the arts, and you find out what kind of dynamics work and what sort of leadership works there, and you try and bring you know pull that together and. And you can, uh, people can learn from each other. And I think we desperately need something like this because there are things going on in, in, in ballet, for example, and just the arts in general that, 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 that get overlooked because they're not necessarily competitive. So people don't think, oh, they can't have anything useful for us because they don't have to go out and beat anybody. But they're achieving things to such incredible high standards. It would be absolutely impossible to do it without leadership and teams of leaders and the, the same similar dynamics of, of, of talent and, 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 and all those kinds of things. Exactly what you find in a football team. And I think that was one of the, you know, I'd love to see something like that. And just finally, because I've gone on far too long, um, about the Ched Evans thing, I'm, I'm going to take a kind of a, a bit of a, uh, I'm going to wuss out a bit, because I just think because we're talking about leadership, what I'd like to see is in a situation like that, someone come out and make a decision either way, but be absolutely sure about it. And this comes back to what I said about authority. Whether they want Chad Evans back in the team or they don't, come out, say so, don't make no bones about it, and say why. And, and just be firm that you'll absolutely believe in what you're doing. And like I say, this comes back to the illusion of authority. And I think that's, you know, that would be, that's what I'd like to see from, uh, from, from Sheffield United. Just a couple of things. Just on the morality thing, I think what... Kind of what happens is that so much of sport becomes another narrative that we all follow. It's a very important narrative for us. Sorry, I'm sounding a bit sort of like, you know, I've got a textbook of postmodernism around somewhere painful. But what I mean by that is that, you know, it almost becomes a soap opera in our lives. What's the latest that's happening for our team? I'm so pissed off with Evening Standard at the moment, who seem to have a complete anti-Tottenham thing. They barely feature any articles about it. It's always about his team or Chelsea or whatever. I think they've offended them. And I'm really stark. I want more. I, you know, I can't get enough of my soap opera. And so, in the soap opera, there's goodies. There's baddies. There's Luis Suarez. And I agree with you. I, I was, at the time, you know, that that was thought of thinking, God, no, please, no. And there was also a time when Joey Barton looked like he might end up at Tottenham. And then I would have been completely against that. Now, 
uh, not necessarily on the footballing side, but the reasons why I didn't want Joey Barton there. I've, I've actually changed my mind about Joey Barton, and I follow him on Twitter. I find it quite interesting in, in all sorts of ways. And he is, you know, he's not a kind of... Uh, the kind of straw man that one, one thought he might be. What I, what, what I mean is that this isn't real morality that we're grappling with here. This is a story, and I think that's why we get confused about it. I finally, just final point I make, come, coming back to the leadership thing and, and picking up what, what Hillary, uh, I think, was, was alluding to. I think, coming back to the original point I made about this connection that Coe saw between um, the kind of risk analysis and willing to take risks intelligently and with focus and, in the end, with ruthlessness. Those would be characterised, if you like, as kind of... That could be characterised as being testosterone-fueled. And, and I think there is some real connection there. And I think that's... Uh, you know, I, I think it is... Um, interesting that you would that the but it's not just you know Tim Sherwood taking his Tottenham gilet off and throwing it into the hoardings everybody thought he was a prat that's not what we're talking about anymore we're talking about doing this in a really intelligent controlled way because you know it does really matter despite the fact it's a fiction Okay, well, I'll tell you, any final points? Just when people, the speakers come back at the end, we, just on what Luke was saying about the traditional view of the manager, it'd be interesting for Matthias, is, is it true that Joachim Lowe is secretly very shouty and aggressive like Alex Ferguson, or it really is he like <laughs> a guy in a boy band, as he's often portrayed? So it'd be interesting, just if there's any comments on that, because there's a certain view he's perceived here as a very different sort of case. Is there any final... Does, No, I thought the um, <clears throat> tennis, um, I haven't mentioned tennis, you, you mentioned about sports science. Well, the only one we see, you know, we, we've had all of that. We've had all the investment. We've had all the, all the effort. Uh, I'm just wondering if we, we're perhaps trying a bit too hard with all these sports, you know, that there's just too much science and we're, we're not allowing any of the individuality to yes, come through. Yes, I'd agree. Andy ask. Murray's the only one that we've had, yeah. and that seems to be, and we mentioned about... Uh, uh, female leaders, well, it seems to be her, his mother that's uh, sort of pushed him t- to go that extra 5% that nobody, we, you know, nobody's appeared on the radar that's, that, that's managed to do that. I don't want to get too off topic, but yeah, the sports science thing is, is absolutely true, and there's evidence that, because we, we're, we're behind the curve, I think, in sports science a little bit, and I think, from my understanding, in, Aus- in places like Australia, that is all very, on the, very much on the forefront of, of sports science, is that they've done exactly that. They're reining in a lot of their science now, just because it's, it's, it's become a complete, it's become an exercise in ridiculous micromanagement, and they're realising that it's hampering people more than it is, more than it is uh, um, uh, helping them. But yeah, Judy Murray, a good, a good example of a, a female sporting leader, and Emily Moresmo, of course, who is now her, her, her son's coach. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up um, issue in, in representation in management, and the inevitable one, of course, is black management in football. Uh, the using the Rooney rule as being a way of of somehow trying to solve this, 
the fact that uh, how they how managers are selected as though there was a shortlist, and that somehow by having some uh, black managers in the shortlist was somehow going to change things. But it's 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 extraordinary to me how in British football, where there are so many terrific black players, how they've not been a you know, if something's going on that stops black managers coming to the fore, and it just makes no sense. And what a waste of a skill. You know, it's an inevitably a reflection of our society, but nevertheless, uh, it's something which is there to be fought for. Yeah, I was thinking about that as well, about the managers and the point you mentioned, people just recruit in their own likeness, which is why perhaps black managers aren't getting a chance or even maybe female managers aren't breaking through. I think there's a, a, a second division French side as a female boss at the moment, so it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. I like the idea about sort of cross-pollination amongst managers crossing over different sports. I think the only issue there is perhaps credibility. You know, a, a top football manager is not going to have any credibility unless he knows cricket or tennis. So that might stop that happening. And, you know, I guess in life, people learn from the best in different industries. You know, you like to use Steve Jobs or Terry Lee, whoever the top bosses are, people look to learn from them. And in terms of Chad Evans... My feeling is he will stay at Sheffield United. It just dawned on me as a dawn because if they haven't dismissed him when he went inside, the club have really made a decision there. The point to make a decision would have been when he went inside. I work as a HR manager, so I've put my HR hat on. <laughs> if an employee's gone inside, you pretty much gross misconduct dismissal. Okay. Yeah, so it's not contracted. In 2012. They, so they okay. have got a decision about whether yeah. they renew it or not. Okay. So he's not, as I understand it, yeah. actually under contract at the moment. But in, in terms of going back to strong leadership, maybe the club at the time should have sat around the board and made a decision, what are we going to do? I, I understand he's a top striker for them, so they, deep down they probably want him back, but strong leadership, make a decision, put it on your website, well, that's it. So two years down yes, the line. And, and, and preparation, done. I think it's a good point. It's a preparation. Mm. I think a good leader is going to look ahead and is going to say, right, what problems have we got coming with this? Mm. You know, what problems is this going to create to us? Let's go to a strategy. And again, you know, my hero of the day, Dave Brailsford, is all, you know, he's, he's all, he would have been all over that one. Mm. And, and the issue with that, it, it's something in the public domain because, again, wearing my HR hat, what's the relevance of rape to being a footballer? Is he likely to recommit that offence in his day job? Not really, but the perception that mm, do, do we want to be associated with such a player? Then again, most of the followers of Sheffield United and men, if it was women, they probably wouldn't accept it. I think the male followers of Sheffield United might might let it slide, men being men. Sorry. Okay. But, but. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for your audience. I'm just glad the speakers give everybody a minute to, five minutes left, so give everybody a minute to give their final thoughts, anything they want to say, um, and then we'll wind up the time. Yeah, interesting question with the uh, um, black players and no black managers. It seems to be the opposite to Scotland. Actually, no players but great managers. I don't know. I don't know what that. I don't. I don't really know what that. What that is. Um, I, I agree with, with Luke. I think uh, to to a very large extent, leadership can be learned. But I would really stress that point. Today, it is much more difficult uh, uh, because all that social sentiment of. Uh, um, uh, of modesty and hostility towards management actually makes it much more difficult to people to stick stick to that and to 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 keep uh, keep stay on stay on the line and actually doing that. Um, I just again I just think it is really appalling that business people today need sportsmen to learn how to be greedy 
you know, this is just it's just funny, you know. Maybe you you remember that that famous uh, German swim swimming star Michael Gross. He won several Olympic medals and all that stuff. He's in big big in business now, speaking business, you know, to going to manage to managers. And I always think, what is he going to tell them? You know, he spent twenty years in water, you know. <laughs> Um, so and, and 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 this is about what it is, and I think we're actually losing a bit sight here. You know, we expect of of sport people to be somehow, I don't know, moral uh, uh, role models. Um, and we're basically dis- destroying uh, um, the actual focus of performance. And um, this is this is an area that uh, sport was an area where this was particularly important. And I think we have to somehow defend that uh, and um, save uh, sport people from having to be moral role models. Thank you. I just wanted to say a couple of things on the uh, black manager's point. I think I read something um, last week that um, there are no black people on boards of football clubs. No, no, all of the football clubs in the UK, there isn't one black person it sits on the board, board of directors of like, yeah, it's just, you know, just like the highest level that you can be on, on it. So I think that says a lot about, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and I wouldn't go uh, as far as saying we need affirmative action of any kind. I just think people need an open mind. You know, I, um, and, and it's a, it's, a, it's a shift in culture and it's, you know, giving opportunity to good people regardless of, of their race, gender, whatever it is. I think that's, that's the most important thing. Um, in terms of female leaders, actually, um, I'd dare say in sport, we have Karen Brady. I mean, what she's done to West Ham is a real miracle, you know. Um, she is absolutely excellent. Um, and I, I, but it's a shame that I don't, can't really think of many more examples. But, um, um, and just, in, you know, in, on the general topic of, of, you know, sporting leaders, um, I think I, I, I agree with, with Matthias. Uh, on a few things, not not on to, on his World Cup take, obviously, um, but I just think if I'm speak a little bit more about Brazilian football and you know this route that you know when you have excellent footballers, um, you expect them at some point or some of them to then carry on their expertise in football and become managers and you know work with clubs and improve the the, the sport and 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 whatever it is. And I have got a good example. It's, you, you would think someone like Romario would do that. But Brazil has so many problems and so many issues with corruption, with uh, you name it, we have it. It's a, just a, it's a very, very problematic country that Romario actually went into politics. And he was a, a, a representative of the lower house until uh, beginning of October when he was um, elected senator for the state of Rio with 63% of the vote. Because he is actually excellent. I've been following him as a, as a lower house representative. And he's, he's, he attends all the sessions and he does a lot of work. And he has very, I happen to agree with, with, with his politics as well. And I just think, oh, why or oh why isn't he doing all that in football? You know, but it's just because we have so many structural problems, you know, in a country like Brazil. But then, you know, maybe it's, it's, a, it's a thing to think about that, um, you know, as I was saying in my sort of opening, which is 
um, why is it that um, Brazilian club football isn't good enough and why is it that we're hemorrhaging all of our talent to, to Europe? It's because you know, there isn't leadership in changing all that. We need political will. We need leadership. We need to change the fact that clubs are not-for-profit entities and we just need to change the whole change of culture to make sure that we invest in young talent that we want to keep in Brazil um, so that you know, we, we can start, we can, we, can, we can shift from being sellers to being buyers and we can bring in you know, the talent from Europe to Brazil. It's going to be a long time until that happens, but we definitely need some sort of leadership. And I think sporting leadership is not just about good managers, it's not, it's not just about good captains on the pitch or um, you know, good um, sort of leaders in cricket teams, whatever it is. I think it's also about um, the wide leadership in the organisation, in the economic organisation of the sport. Very quick points. The first one is, is, is I absolutely agree that a, a really important part of leadership is being able to make a decision. And again, if you compare that to an absolute lack of ability to make a decision in the workplace, I think you can see uh, why, why, again, people find sports leadership uh, attractive. Just on what managers do, it's, it, I think with Fergie, one of the misconceptions is always that, you know, Fergie would do something at half time that would turn his team around. And, and with Fergie, it was always as much what he did to the other team as what he did to his own team. You know, so all those mind games and, uh, and everything were as much directed outwards uh, as inwards. Uh, and finally, so there was a question very early on about, you know, how, how do you decide who is to blame when something goes wrong, uh, when, when your team loses? And I think, you know, again, one of the real signs of a good leader is that there isn't that external public blame culture. Uh, you know, there is a collective responsibility, and that's uh, forging that is an important part of leadership. Final points, I think I just want to echo what Matthias said about this sport and business thing, because I do think it's also, I think it's a nonsense. I think it's an industry that's come about to give sports psychologists more work, I, and, um, and also uh, uh, athletes who've retired, uh, you know, a nice, you know, a nice way of, e of earning, of earning uh, easy money. Uh, uh, black managers, I agree with, it, with, it, with uh, everything uh, that we've said. I think just going back to it's just the, 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 the deeply, deeply entrenched culture that needs to be overturned. Um, uh, I've spent the last month at the, at the party political conferences um, as part of some work I'm doing, and uh, the, the, while, while no one really likes them, everyone there sort of concedes that shortlisting does have a kind of a positive effect. And, and no one really wants to do it because of the reasons that have been stated, but it does seem, apparently, you know, the research is that, that, that it's worked, so I, I, I don't know if that affects the, 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 the Rooney rule. Just one last thing on um, cross-pollination. Cross I agree with what you said. It, it would present a massive problem of a lack of authority, which is, you know, when I go back to where I started, you have to have the authority or the perception of it. And uh, it would be very difficult, for example, for someone to fit into a football setup as we know it from outside of football because they would lack that authority. But uh, I'm always struck by something uh, uh, Dave Brailsford describes himself as the conductor of an orchestra. And uh, in the football example, it wouldn't be him uh, telling people what to do, but he would select the team and the structure and the, the, the ethos and the, 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 those kind of wider aspirational and structural things that I think that, that he's... Uh, that he's done, uh, he's done really well on. Yeah, I think I think the final thing I'd say in in relation to the question you were raising, I, I, and and also what Hillary was saying about kind of where, where where are the black manager role models? Where where are the women leader role models? Well, there's a woman called Hope Powell who you know is very. I mean, I would have thought she must have a huge amount to offer. Um, 
in that area. And if you if you kind of got her together with Chris Powell, Paul Ince, and Helen Rabatz and, and Karen Brady, you know, you might have a really interesting kind of think tank there that would be able to make some really interesting recommendations, um, uh, which, you know, because they're going to f- have felt it, have really felt it in a way that, you know, many of us will just be sort of pontificating from a place over there. Um, I think I've said all the rest that I want to say today. Okay, we thank our panel. Okay, thank you. We've got a break.